Hello, and welcome to another installment of The Weird Chronicles. Each episode, we bring you tales of action and adventure from Malifaux and the other side. There are many forms of entertainment in Malifaux, from live theatre performances at the Star, to Ethervox programmes just like this one. But few inspire such excitement and anticipation as the carnival. When the wagons roll into town and the big top goes up, everybody knows they can expect an evening of wholesome family entertainment. I hope you enjoy the dark carnival. The Dark Carnival by Graham Stevenson No one saw who put them up, but by the time Clancy had stepped out onto his porch, a small crowd had gathered outside the livery store across the way. Plantagenet couldn't really be referred to as a town, just a saloon plus friends in the Badlands, far, far south of Malifaux, that would need a gold rush and about three generations of progeny to reach a triple-figure population. As such, visitors to their lone street and small, drab, weirdwood houses were extremely rare and desperately popular. The arrival of an advertisement was almost unheard of. Clancy made his way across the wide, dusty street and joined the excited throng reviewing the wall of Avery's store. His letters were rusty, but he could read well enough, provided there wasn't a time limit. His eyes worked their way down the poster, mouth working absently as he formed each word in turn. Mr. Cooper's Dark Carnival, he murmured. Well, this is something, isn't it? exclaimed Avery, the balding and shiny-faced livery owner. The carnival in Plantagenet. It's something all right, agreed Clancy, wondering whether Avery was more pleased at the impending carnival or that his store was being used to advertise it. Don't think we've ever had one here before. The store owner bit his lower lip, the flesh turning white in contrast to the rest of his strawberry-coloured skin. No. I dare say not. I dare say not. They've got an elephant, pointed out Mrs. Foreman with astonishment, helpfully indicating the referred-to animal with a finger for those who had yet to notice the gaudily adorned centerpiece of the poster. Says here, marvel at the wonders of the carnival, read Robert Collier, proprietor of Nancy's Bar. Well, they've got flying monkeys offered Sally Bright, who was Robert's common-law wife and bartender. It was widespread subterranean knowledge that the saloon was named after Robert's first wife, and Sally had made it her mission to get a ring on her finger and thus have a legitimate reason to demand a change of name to Sally's bar. I ain't seen one of them before. They got mum, mum, or where do you suppose those are? Avery stumbled over the unfamiliar word. Mummerets, corrected Robert, his brow furrowed. Sounds Egyptian. They've got an elephant, Mrs. Foreman reiterated, not certain that her first exclamation had had sufficient impact with the other residents. The astonishing Mr. Peanuts, he's called. Holy crow, bellowed a dark-haired boy who had barged his way through the adults. Look what's come into town. Mind your manners, Billy Douglas, snapped Mrs. Foreman. And those elbows, you near burst me. Sorry, Mrs. Foreman, 
the boy replied dutifully, but his attention was fixed on the primary colours of the poster. Wow, look at that fella! That fellow, corrected Mrs. Foreman with self-absorbed confidence. She taught the children of Plantagenet for an hour each morning, except Sundays, providing some basic schooling on letters, numbers, and, of course, good manners. Braving the six little monsters of the town every day had elevated her status within their township and allowed her to enjoy the enviable misconception among her neighbours of being educated. M, M, the boy struggled. Mercury, Mrs. Foreman finished for him. He was a guard to the Romans. Why, I bet he's strong enough to lift one, Billy said. Quite why Avery's horse, a vast Clydesdale from Europe that stood over 18 hands, had a Mexican name was beyond anyone's understanding, Avery included. He might be at that, agreed Clancy, noting the imposing physique and the way the strong man hoisted an iron barbell over his head without any apparent effort. If the reality proved even half as impressive as the illustration, he deserved the title Mercury. A small weight crashed into Clancy's back and began a determined scramble towards his shoulders and a better vantage point. What's up, da? asked Mikey as his chubby arm hooked around his father's neck to better hoist himself skyward. What's going on? It's the carnival, son, Clancy explained. They're coming to town. They have an elephant, stated Mrs. Foreman with some authority. What's that? There, on the poster, Clancy said. The big grey animal in the middle. It's going to be amazing, Billy Douglas qualified. An elephant, Mikey repeated. That's it, son. Clancy hoisted his boy higher over his shoulders so that a scabbed leg hung on either side of his neck. Big as a house. And it's coming here. That's what the poster says. Oh, boy. The day rolled on regardless, but the burgeoning May sun was somehow easier to bear with the knowledge that the dark carnival was on its way. The children were so unruly that Mrs. Foreman had to dismiss them after an exasperated twenty minutes, and they spent the rest of the day chasing each other through the dust, screeching and battling over who was Mr. Peanuts, who was Mercury, and who was Mr. Cooper, the enigmatic ringmaster. Clancy watched with a grin when he could but there was more carpentry work in a small town than one might think, and he spent most of his day hanging doors in Nancy's bar. Robert Collier was convinced there was a boom coming, after hearing a rumour of a gold nugget the size of an acorn found in a stream about thirty miles to the northwest. He had invested in extending the rear of the saloon to incorporate three guest bedrooms and a poker room for the inevitable high rollers when they hit town. Clancy viewed the possibility of a gold boom with scepticism, but he knew enough to keep his mouth shut. Work was work, and he wasn't going to scupper a solid payday by trying to get his employer to see sense. Times had never been easy by anyone's standards, but they had been particularly trying since the death of his wife, Clem. Frontier towns were fraught with danger, and Clem's end had come, as it did for so many, in a stubborn winter with a racking cough that turned into consumption. Left alone with a six-year-old son who wasn't able to understand where his mother had gone was a challenge the likes of which Clancy had never encountered. 
He wondered sometimes whether his frayed sanity would last the day, and it had been difficult not to succumb to the despair that poured through the ragged hole in his life. However, one day followed the next as one foot does the other, and the world moved forward in its own inscrutable fashion. That feeling of emptiness would never leave him, but neither would the memory of Clem's face nor the smell of her hair, and Mikey needed his father now more than ever, so Clancy had picked himself up and started the slow process of putting his life back together. He finished rescrewing the hinge in place and swung the door to, watching with a frown as it stuck halfway into the frame. Weirdwood was the only indigenous wood that grew in any quantities in the badlands of Malifaux, as far as he knew, and it was hell to work with, dense, crooked and knotty, and seemingly possessed of a contrary nature. Had Robert been serious about investing in his renovations, he might have sprung for some planks of oak or even a nice soft pine for the doors, but evidently the additional expense was unjustified. Muttering, he began to unscrew the door again. Despite having planed it three times, the damn thing still didn't fit. Either the door or the frame had warped since he had built it an hour ago, and if he didn't know better, he'd have sworn the stubborn material was deliberately vexing him. Clancy! He went to the painless window frame at the end of the hall and stuck his head out. Avery was standing across the street, wiping his hands on his apron and looking ruddier than usual. He pointed with one finger down the street. The dark carnival was coming. It came out of the afternoon heat haze, winding its way across the badlands and unmistakably heading for town. At first, all they could make out were wagons, at least a dozen of them, all bulging like mushrooms with brightly coloured loads, hints of shrill pipe music carried on the air. The entire town had collected by the time more detail could be discerned, and the kids became apoplectic with excitement when the undulating grey boulder at the head of the procession resolved itself to be an elephant. All at once, the carnival was upon them, and the train of wagons was rumbling along their street while figures unseen a moment earlier suddenly fanned out on either side, the pre-show hooks beginning to sink in. Clancy grabbed Mikey anxiously as the massive Mr. Peanuts lumbered past, snorting dust from his trunk and flapping those enormous ears like starched sheets, convinced his squealing boy would rush out into its path, heedless of the danger. The animal's grey skin was dappled with bright painted triangles of colour, and its tusks and skull were adorned with an intricately woven fabric that shook gold tassels with every stride. On its back was an improbably huge bundle of chests, crates and wads of fabric, all roped together into a teetering load that would surely have buried whichever unlucky soul was tasked with loosening the ropes to dismantle it. Demented pipe music was playing somewhere, a jaunty tune that somehow sounded more manic than celebratory. An elegant figure pirouetted by, unnaturally thin and angular. Clancy thought at first he was looking at an emaciated man in brown garb, until he realised that the figure was made from wood, some sort of mannequin yet motorised and mobile, and wearing a tragic mask. It spun past, trailing a long, gaily coloured sash like a comet trail, chased a second later by a squealing Becky Hollander. It's Mercury! screamed Mikey 
pulling hard at his father's arm away from the wooden man. It's strongman Mercury! Sure enough, along came the man himself, even larger in the flesh than his poster suggested. He was wearing a tight-fitting one-piece uniform and was carrying a cast-iron barbell the way a normal man might carry a broom. On his opposite shoulder was perched a slender woman in a dusty, figure-hugging dress, the lower half of her face covered in a veil. As Mercury drew abreast of them, Clancy realised with a start that the woman's veil was a thick, lustrous beard and moustache, combed and oiled as meticulously as her hair. Her eyes met his and crinkled with amusement at his expression. Mercury! Mikey was hollering, waving both arms to attract the giant's attention. At the sound of his name, Mercury lifted the barbell and pumped it repeatedly overhead, as easily as a man stretching as he climbs out of bed. Clancy watched the play of muscle and thick tendon in the arm and shoulder as the strong man hefted what was probably a 200-pound load. Rather than be impressed, Clancy found he was unsettled. There'd be no stopping a man that powerful if he set his mind on taking something that belonged to another. The wagons were rolling past, one after another, each more mysterious than the last as dust from the dry street began to mask them. An agile shape leapt from one wagon to the next and spread shining limbs. It took Clancy a moment to process what it was. A monkey with metal wings. The largest wagon yet rumbled past, and atop it was a circular platform like a huge drum in candy-striped colours. Standing on it and apparently immune to the swaying and rocking of the vehicle was Mr. Cooper, the ringmaster. He was unmistakable, dressed identically to his poster, in a deep maroon coat and tails, striped pants, waistcoat and scarf. He was looking directly at Clancy and performed a deep theatrical bow, sweeping off a glistening top hat and touching his heart with long fingers. The shadows under his eyebrows were very deep, but Clancy could see a shining intelligence within. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. His voice was scratchy and gravelly, yet it carried easily over the crazed piping and thunder of wagons. Tonight shall be an experience beyond your understanding. You shall see marvels that defy explanation. Feats that defy reason. The wagon rumbled past, and Clancy realized Cooper's was the last in the procession. The performers were already away ahead of them, receding into the cloud as they progressed to the far side of town and the open scrubland beyond. The ringmaster swiveled expertly on his precarious podium, turning to face the watching crowd as the wagons vanished one by one into the dust. I cordially invite you, one and all, he cried. Join us at sunset where you shall be witnesses and honored guests of the dark carnival. The last wagon rattled into the swirling yellow cloud, and Clancy saw a final flourish of the top hat, and then there was nothing but the fading creaking and piping and the excited babble of his neighbors. Can we go? Can we go, Doc? Can we? Can we? Uh... 
Mikey's eyes were as wide as Clancy had ever seen them, and he knew that whatever the cost was for admission to this travelling mama show, he would have to pay it. Well, the whole of the rest of the town will be there, he replied. I wouldn't be much of a father if only you and I stayed home, would I? The fierce, joyful hug from his son was worth the price of admission alone. Clancy's curiosity had been piqued, and the rest of the afternoon seemed abnormally long. If it was long for him, it must have been unbearable for the little ones, and there were inevitable tears and tantrums before the sun finally began to set. The carnival folk had not been idle during the last hours of daylight. The wagons had formed a half-circle a hundred yards across, perhaps five hundred yards from the edge of town, in the centre of that space they had erected a vast tent, made from silk, striped in red, white and purple. The tent was circular, and the nearest face of it had been peeled open like the skin of an orange to form an enticing vestibule that led to the structure's interior. As the sun turned to bronze and sank into the horizon, orange torches sprang to life around the tent's entrance, and once again, the skirling pipe music started up. The townsfolk headed to the torchlight almost as soon as it appeared, eager and excitable grins on every face. Clancy went at a stumbling run, pulled along by Mikey, who was like a desperate dog on a leash. There were performers outside the tent, leaping and gamboling, contorting and juggling. Robert Collier was the first to reach the tent entrance with Sally on his arm. There was an awkward moment when Robert fingered his purse and looked quizzically at the bearded lady who was adorning one side of the entrance and blowing lazy smoke from her cigarillo. How, how much is admission, ma'am? He asked. She looked at him long enough to make Robert swallow. Then she laughed loudly and the other performers joined in. We are entertainers, not employees, good sir, she said sweeping a slender hand towards the dark opening. Enter of your own free will. All of you. We shall take only from you that which is freely given. Robert seemed satisfied by this and eagerly stuffed his purse back into his waistcoat. Most gracious, ma'am, he said, and ducked into the tent. With the revelation of free admission spreading through the crowd like a brush fire, the townsfolk surged forwards, flowing through the entrance and into the dark belly of the tent without so much as a backward glance, and Clancy went with them. Welcome, the performers cried as they filed in. Welcome, welcome. The tent interior turned out to be a shade more cramped than Clancy had anticipated. The semicircular bleachers had been set up on three sides of the perimeter, forming a horseshoe-shaped seating area that looked down on the ring in the middle of the floor and the veiled exit that led to the preparation area and wagons outside. Stout ropes crossed this way and that overhead, holding up the structure of the tent from within, and Clancy could make out a few thin lengths of planking up there that led to an opening in the very centre of the tent's ceiling. It was dark and smelled slightly musty, but it quickly filled up with murmuring, jostling townsfolk all of them gazing expectantly down at the ring and the flap at the back of the tent. Where's Mr. Peanut, duh? Mikey wanted to know, 
squirming on the bleacher beside him. Clancy ruffled his son's blonde hair. As the only fair-headed child in Plantagenet, Mikey had quickly realised that the anonymity of being one scruffy urchin among many didn't apply to him, where identifying the culprit of some mischief or other was concerned. You saw him earlier today, short stuff. He'll be here soon enough. The gloomy shadows were suddenly starkly illuminated when iron braziers around the ring burst into life, throwing hot amber light across the ring of faces. A pungent smoke began to filter from the coals that glowed within. It made Clancy twitch when it touched his nostrils and carried a sweet foreign fragrance that made his head throb behind his eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, rumbled a deep voice from somewhere behind the curtain. Boys and girls, welcome to the dark carnival. The curtain burst aside as a mammoth shape surged into the ring. In an enclosed space, Mr. Peanuts was almost too huge to comprehend. The ridge of his embroidered skull seemed almost lost in the rapidly gathering smoke, and his grey bulk thundered into the tent so quickly that the spectators on the far side of the bleachers cringed back instinctively, lest he keep going and pulp them in passing. The vast animal came to a shuddering halt in the centre of the tent, and a nimble figure vaulted from his back, landing with the grace of a cat in the light of the braziers. Mr. Cooper. He threw his arms wide and beamed the epitome of showmanship, holding a polished walnut cane with a gold tip in one hand. Welcome, dear friends, he boomed as a vicious-looking ape swung down from the elephant's neck and landed at his feet, dressed in short, stripy pants and a fez. Welcome to each and every one of you. What a show we have in store for you tonight. What a spectacle. Mad Piping immediately started up somewhere outside the tent, and the curtain was ripped aside as a cluster of wild individuals raced in, spinning wooden figures that backflipped all the way around the circle, drawing gasps and cries from the rapt audience. The Mummerettes, ladies and gentlemen, cried Mr. Cooper as the figures flickered past, almost too fast for the eye to follow. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll exclaim. One of the mummerettes paused long enough for Clancy to see it held a pair of glittering swords in its hands, and then it launched itself through the air, spinning end over end, and actually leaving a trail through the thick smoke that swam overhead. It landed lightly on one foot, blades poised, as a second mummerette raced directly for it and then leapt over its colleague, trailing a bright yellow sash that flapped madly. The blades whirred, there was a gasp from the crowd, and the second mummerette landed untouched in a snowstorm of yellow confetti. Before the applause could break out, they were away spinning like tops. Clancy tried to follow the movements, but they were too fast and the smoke was too thick. His head was throbbing gently, and the sickly floral smell overloaded his senses. More mummerette antics followed, 
and there was some sort of a brief tragedy where two of the mannequins acted out a forbidden tryst while Mr. Cooper narrated their doomed love. It was over so quickly that Clancy wasn't certain he followed all of it, and he couldn't have said why the lovers had to thrust swords through one another's breasts before the jealous third mummerette smashed their heads to kindling with a mallet. There had been manic laughter from somewhere while this happened, although Clancy didn't think it came from the audience. If the strange dramatic stint left a foul taste in the mouth, it was forgotten almost immediately with the appearance of Mercury. He lifted this, he flexed that, he astonished and amazed, and the crowd howled for more. Every face flushed, every eye overly bright in the writhing vapour of the braziers. Yay! Mercury! A child at his elbow was hollering, hopping up and down on the bleacher. Watch it, kid. Clancy scolded when the boy jarred him with an elbow, pulling his attention away from the astonishing feats happening in the ring. The boy looked up at him, surprised. Sorry, Da. Clancy blinked, then laughed. Of course, it was Mikey. How absurd for him to forget. Then Lizzie the bearded lady, called Mr. Cooper, and the inimitable baritone Lola. A fresh roar of astonishment went up from the audience, and he turned back to see the woman that had been riding on Mercury's shoulder now stepping into the ring arm in arm with a bizarre circus figure. Evidently a man, baritone Lola nevertheless carried himself like a woman, dancing nimbly into the ring on tall heels despite his girth and flashing suspenders and a ragged-looking tutu. His face was made up with white and red grease paint, and his manner was coy and playful. But there was something indefinably sinister about the way he cavorted around the ring. Clancy squeezed the bridge of his nose, shook his head as the unlikely pair began a musical number. Lola's voice was exceptionally deep, and he recognised it as the announcer's voice from a while ago. Or had it only been a few minutes? He was no longer sure. The duet was followed by baritone Lola, swallowing flaming swords brandished by thin Lizzie, and then there was a confusing cat-and-mouse chase, in which Lola was chased around the ring by the fez-wearing baboon holding a miniature flaming sword of its own. And there was something a shade too convincing in Lola's fearful expression as he clattered around and around the elephant, and the chattering baboon's pursuit was perhaps a bit too earnest to be funny, but there was certainly a lot of laughter, even if Clancy couldn't have said quite where it was coming from. The procession of bizarre spectacles continued. Mr. Cooper announced Barnabas. Is he a man? Is he a bear? Is he a fish? Only he knows for sure. And the shambling, drooling thing that was led into the ring on a chain evoked screams of horror and relish both. Baritone Lola returned for another song but this time accompanied by a row of glass jars that contained petrified heads suspended in greenish fluid. He proceeded to throw his voice quite convincingly as each of the heads in sequence sang one verse of the song. The smoke was exceptionally thick by this stage, but Clancy was fairly certain their little jaws flapped in time with the lyrics. Some sort of conjurer's trick, he felt certain. Thread or hidden levers, 
It didn't matter. Clancy laughed along with the rest. And on and on the macabre carnival went. Mr. Cooper introduced Atro and Phoebe, and the two entered from the hole in the centre of the tent's roof, sliding down long, coiled stripes of silk. Using their intertwining limbs and the fabric to spin and slide their way down to the ground. As impressive as this was, they then worked their way back up the silk ribbons, affixing thin sickle blades to the fabric as they went, winding themselves up tighter and tighter until they reached the ceiling like a pink fly in a spider's cocoon with their limbs tangled and only their heads sticking out, as much one being now as two. The pipes blared and they dropped, spinning incredibly fast as the silk unwound like a yo-yo. The sickle blades flashed and a tumble of disorganised body parts hit the floor of the ring with a splatter. A huge surge of screams and laughter and shouting and applause and horror washed over the tent. Clancy stared, unbelieving at the twitching chunks of meat, until Mr Cooper swept onto scene and threw a black silk cape over the wreckage. The braziers flashed, clouds of smoke surged into the air, and the black silk cape was thrown aside, and two mummerettes sprang to their feet, poised and whole, and Clancy cheered and whistled with all the rest, barely noticing that the floor of the ring was still wet and red with blood. And on, and on, and on. Clancy's thumping head was almost forgotten as another spectacle and yet another took to the stage. He was relieved when Mr. Cooper called all the children down into the ring to join Mr. Peanuts's procession, finally getting rid of the blonde brat that kept jostling him at the culmination of every act. The kids marched gleefully around the ring while the piping music soared and the braziers belched, and then the elephant led them out through the curtain and the show continued. Clancy was glad to be rid of them, immediately spellbound by the return of Mercury wrestling a lion right in front of him. The animal tore his back to the bone while they grappled, but Mercury was unperturbed, getting the snarling beast into a headlock and twisting, twisting, until the crack of its spine could be heard in the furthest bleacher. Mercury brandished his defeated foe overhead, turning in a complete circle while he accepted the townsfolk's adulation. Clancy saw ribs glinting through the strongman's rent flesh as he turned around, but that only seemed to make the victory all the sweeter. He cheered. And yet more followed. The mummerettes returned to the stage, emerging like wraiths from the smoke, and lanced a number of volunteers from the audience through the chest. The blades slid from their backs red, yet somehow they returned to their seats, laughing with all the rest. Clancy roared and applauded until he was hoarse and his hands were raw. The laughter was almost constant now, washing over every act, even washing over Mr. Cooper's narration, but that didn't matter. Only the show mattered, only the shine of grease paint, the flash of steel and the blood-red adulation of the crowd. And then, all very suddenly, it was over. The braziers sputtered and went out, plunging the tent into darkness. Only the torches outside the entrance and the faintest blue-white finger of starlight through the roof of the tent were visible. And
and in that starlight was the shape of Mr. Cooper. He was breathing heavily, his face pale and sweating, and his voice wasn't much more than a whisper as he produced his polished top hat from the darkness behind him. And now, our show is at an end, good people. There is no more. We poor souls leave you in good faith, paid in full. And with that, he placed his hat atop his head and vanished in the shadow of it, and was never seen again by the residents of Plantagenet. The townsfolk stumbled and groped their way out of the tent, following the orange glow of the torches. Clancy went with them, a bone-deep fatigue weighing him down, his head felt like it was going to burst, and he rubbed his temples in the vain hope of easing the discomfort. No one spoke as they staggered homeward. Every face around him told the same story. Every eye was bloodshot, every shoulder drooped wearily. The air was sharp and fresh after the heat and smoke of the tent, but Clancy felt no better by the time he got back to the house. He paused on his porch something elusive floating at the back of his foggy mind, something he'd forgotten. He patted his waistcoat pocket. His watch was still there. He fumbled inside his waistcoat. His wallet was where it ought to be. He stuffed a hand into his pants pocket and pulled out the rusty door key, right where it should have been. The niggling thought hovered beyond his recollection, but adamant he'd left something behind. Clancy went inside and crawled into bed, still dressed. Whatever it was, it couldn't be important. He'd have remembered if it was important. The cold stars were brighter this far from Malifaux. Mr. Cooper stood at the edge of the dark woods, frowning. He was still weak from the show, weak and heartsick, but this couldn't wait. The tent was packed the wagons long gone, while the exhausted town wallowed in a drugged sleep. And now here he was, many miles away, and awaiting his rendezvous. He sensed its presence before he saw it, emerging from among the trees with a grace and stealth that was unnatural. Tall and lean as a whip, the creature's blue flesh was decorated with intricate, thread-like tattoos. It stalked out from under the canopy on cloven hooves, a shining, bald cranium sporting two long spiral horns and two dark eyes as distant and alien as the stars overhead. Ah, the ringmaster returns, the Neverborn said with malevolent glee. Cooper motioned with a hand, and a small procession began to shuffle up the hill behind him. He watched them as they passed, five auburn heads and one blonde, marching with blank faces. The creature's black eyes danced over the little figures as they paraded by, flashing small black needle teeth in a rapacious smile. Oh, yes, it said gently. I do so enjoy your visits, Cooper. You always bring me such lovely gifts. Cooper ground his teeth, but said nothing, glowering up at the thing. If it sensed his hatred, 
it gave no sign of caring. When the last of them had vanished into the inky shadows of the wood, the creature nodded in absent satisfaction and turned to leave. How many more? Hooper snapped. Surely the debt is paid. The Neverborn stopped at the edge of the trees, seeming to consider. How many more? Cooper asked again, his voice cracking. Please! The creature made a maddeningly vague gesture and smiled at him, six layers of razor teeth. Soon enough, it said. And after, Cooper pressed, taking a step forward, his face contorted with venom and desperation. The Neverborn giggled letting him hang a long time before nodding, the consummate sadist. When the debt is repaid, we shall return what we took, it said. Cooper watched the thing melt back into the tree line, ringmaster of the dark carnival, and just another puppet on a string. That's it for another instalment of The Weird Chronicles. Join us next time for more tales of action and adventure.